Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I, I trust that you do, go ahead and take and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. What comes to your mind when you hear the word coronation? If you've been watching the news recently, maybe you think instantly of King Charles. If you have little kids, maybe you think of Frozen. It's Coronation Day and all the songs that come from that. If you're proud to be an American, maybe you're thankful that coronations don't exist. As one man once said, history began on July 4th, 1776, and everything before that was a mistake. We do not have coronations for kings. We have inaugurations for presidents. And yet there is still a pomp and circumstance that happens with those inaugurations. And there are some funny events and crazy stories that come with inaugurations. There are a number of these stories, but let me give you just three. January 20th. 1969, when Richard Nixon was inaugurated as president, he had the trees around his parade route sprayed with a chemical treatment so that pigeons, if they landed on the trees, their feet would itch and so they'd fly away so that there wouldn't be droppings on all of the people that were lining the streets. Unfortunately, the pigeons enjoyed the taste of the chemical substance and so they would eat the chemical substance, which killed them. And so instead of having bird droppings on the ground, on the crowds, they had dead birds in the midst of the crowds lining the streets. Ronald Reagan, uh, January 20th, 1981, he had red, white, and blue jelly beans at his inauguration. And he had them because jelly beans were what he attributed to helping him quit smoking. And so he loved jelly beans, so he wanted to have jelly beans, and he wanted red, white, and blue for America. But they didn't have blue jelly beans, and so they invented the blueberry jelly bean flavor and color for Ronald Reagan's inauguration. My personal favorite, March 4th, 1869, Ulysses S. Grant, at his inauguration, it was 16 degrees outside, so the champagne that all of the crowd was enjoying froze, and then in the hall where the inauguration speech was held, he had 150 canaries that were in cages above the crowds and they were going to release the canaries and they were going to fly out. And all of the canaries, 150 canaries died. So the entire inauguration speech happened underneath 150 dead birds in this hall. There are a bunch of other stories like this fascinating stories of inaugurations and coronations, but there is no crazier, amazing, awesome story of the inauguration and coronation of the king than the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus in Mark's gospel is just 53 words, but it contains so much rich profound truth. So I want to just ask two questions as we go to our text, as we read our text this morning, I want to ask two questions of us as we begin and study these verses. How would you answer these two questions? Number one, why was Jesus baptized? 
And number two, what does his baptism mean for you today? Why was he baptized? And what does his baptism mean for you in this moment today? How would you answer somebody if they asked you those two questions? Let's read our text and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time and we'll dive in and see rich, rich truths. Mark chapter one, beginning in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. These are the words of the living God. Let's ask him this morning to write their eternal truths on our hearts. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to dive in, to see Christ. And we come to a section of scripture that is familiar to many of us. And yet there's a, a sense at which we might not even be able to explain why Jesus was baptized. We might be able to describe his baptism, describe what happened at his baptism, but why was he baptized? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see the glorious reasons why Christ was baptized and how that impacts our day today, how it changes our affections today, how it dramatically alters the way that we view you, the way we view ourselves, and the way we view our relationship to you in light of what Christ has done. So encourage our hearts this morning, point us to Jesus, that we would love him more. We pray in his name. Amen. So why was Jesus baptized? That's the first question I want to ask. And I believe it's a difficult question to answer right off the bat because baptism by definition, as we saw last week, was for sinners. You were a sinner going to confess your sins and this symbolic cleansing that was happening. So Jesus isn't a sinner. Why is he going to be baptized? Why, back in verse eight, you remember John said, I baptize you with water, but there is somebody coming who's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's mightier than I. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Why then would that worthy one submit himself to the baptism of this unworthy one? Why would one mightier than John be baptized by John? Even John in Matthew chapter three, which we'll look at later uh, this morning, John's gonna argue with Jesus and say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You should be baptizing me. Reminds me of that the first line in that Buffalo Springfield song. There's something happening here and what it is ain't exactly clear. There's something going on, but what is it? What's happening? Let me give you four views that are incredibly deficient that we can just throw away right off the bat. Some people say Jesus is confessing his own sin and this is his act of repentance. Obviously that's wrong. We can cross that one off the list. There's a view that says that John and Jesus were working together to manufacture this public ministry. And so there was a plot that they used the baptism of Jesus to get Jesus famous. He's not the king, he's not the Messiah. 
but they're using this event to get Jesus famous so that people would know him, love him, and submit to him. That's obviously wrong. Now, those two are easy to throw away, but here's two other ones that I think pop up often when we think of the baptism of Jesus. Some people say Jesus is being baptized because he's symbolically living out his own death, burial, and resurrection. As we said last Lord's Day, while we do describe the act of baptism now, post-cross, as you are dying with Christ, you are being buried with him, you're rising into newness of life, there's an aspect of that for sure that's involved in the symbolism of baptism. That's not what it meant to the original people being baptized by John because Jesus hadn't died yet. So I don't think that Jesus is thinking about his own death, burial, and resurrection and saying this is a picture for you because it hadn't happened yet. We also talked last Lord's Day that the Jews would um, cleanse themselves in this thing called a mikvah. They would take ritual cleansing baths in a mikvah. And specifically, high priests would do that. Priests would do it and high priests would do that when they wanted to begin their ministry as an inauguration for their ministry. And so they would uh, cleanse themselves ceremonially to begin their ministry. So some people would say that Jesus is cleansing himself. This is his symbolic ritualistic mikvah of cleansing himself before the ministry of his great high priest work beginning. And I don't think that's the case because I think he's already been living out his great high priestly work by not sinning pre-baptism. He's winning for you and me a record of righteousness and perfect obedience all the way leading up to his baptism. So his great high priestly work started earlier than that and not at his baptism. So there are a number of other views for why we know Jesus was not baptized. But again, I ask, why was he? Somebody says, hey, I'm reading the Gospels and I see that Jesus is baptized. That's confusing to me because right before sinners are being baptized, they're repenting and asking for forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus does the same thing. What's going on? And it might be very easy for you and me to say, well, we know it's not that. He's not asking forgiveness for sins. He's not being cleansed. But what is he doing? What is happening? We say a lot at this church that when God does one thing, he's doing a million things. When Jesus is being baptized, he's doing a million things. There's a lot of answers to this question. I'm going to give you seven of them this morning, okay? Just seven. There's a lot more I could give you, but just seven. It's the number of perfection, so it seems fitting. Seven reasons for why Jesus was baptized. Some we'll go through quickly, some we'll take a little bit more time on. Number one, Jesus is baptized, number one, to inaugurate his public ministry. Jesus is baptized to inaugurate his public ministry. For 30 years, Jesus has been living his life, loving those around him, never sinning, but his public ministry had not begun yet. You remember Jesus says this to Mary in John chapter two, uh, my time has not come yet. When she asks to do a miracle, he says, nope, my time hasn't come yet. And then sometime as he's asking the father, has my time come yet? The father says, yes, now the time has come, begin your ministry. The baptism happened right before the wedding at Cana. And so this is the beginning, the inauguration of that public ministry. It's so important that when the disciples were finding a replacement for Judas, remember 12 disciples, Judas is one of them, Judas uh, denies Jesus, betrays him, and then hangs himself. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 22, when the disciples are finding a replacement for Judas, they say this, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all of the time that the Lord went in and out among us, so they're saying 
this person, whoever's gonna fill the spot of Judas has to be with us in the entirety of the public ministry of Jesus. And then they say this, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that Jesus was taken up from us. So Jesus's ministry was the baptism of Jesus by John to the ascension of Jesus. That is the public ministry of Christ. So the baptism is hugely important because it inaugurates the public ministry of our Savior. Number two, second reason why Jesus is baptized is Jesus is validating John's ministry. Jesus is validating John's ministry. It would be very easy after reading verse eight, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It'd be very easy for us to think that John's ministry is really nice and it's a good idea, but it's not necessary and it's not really doing much of anything. He's this unworthy guy. Jesus is really the guy that we should be looking to and, and his ministry is the one that's really important. John's really is not that important. And Jesus is here to say, no, 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 no. John's ministry is vitally important. And there's a beautiful juxtaposition of verse nine to verse eight. Verse eight is declaring this mighty one that I am so unworthy even to untie his sandals. He's coming and joyfully submitting to me. That's so crazy. And that's Jesus saying, John's ministry, I want to validate it. I want to validate it. How encouraging would this have been to John personally? I remember preaching uh, in seminary, you would do preaching classes and you'd preach in front of your seminary professors, some of whom had written commentaries about the books that you're preaching from. So you would say something like, hey, turn in your Bibles to Matthew, staring at a professor who wrote a commentary that you used on Matthew. And you're going, this is backwards. This is wrong. You should be preaching. You know what? Forget this. Let's close in prayer. We're done. I think that's what John is thinking when he sees Jesus. This is backwards. You should be doing this. I, I shouldn't even be here. What, what am I doing? And Jesus is saying, I am validating everything that you have accomplished up until this point. I'm telling the people that your ministry is amazing. Baptism, the Greek word baptizo, means to immerse into. Jesus is immersed into water. That's why it says immediately coming up out of the water. So baptism is being immersed into water. But it doesn't just mean immersed into water, it can be immersed into anything. And if you're immersed into something, for instance, the Bible says that we are baptized into the church or we're also baptized into Christ. You're immersed into it, meaning you identify with it. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that people were baptized into Moses. The Old Testament Israelites were baptized into Moses. What does that mean? That they were identifying with Moses. Moses was identified with them. They were identified with Moses. They participated in everything that Moses stood for. So at a very simple, um, kind of just an overarching sense, Jesus is being baptized to identify with the message John is proclaiming. That's a, a very real answer you could give to somebody who asks, why is Jesus being baptized? Is he confessing sin? No. Is he asking forgiveness for something? No. Is he repenting? No. What he's doing is he's identifying with the message that John gave. John said there is a need for Messiah to come and give forgiveness of sins to all of us sinners. And Jesus says, that's true. That's the message that I identify with. So he is identifying with John. He's validating John's ministry. And you can just write this down. Mark chapter 11, we'll get to it, uh, Lord willing, sometime in the future. You remember Jesus says to the religious leaders during the Passion Week, when they're trying to test him, Jesus says to them, 
I'll answer your question if you answer me first. Number one, was John's baptism from God or from man? Did man make John famous, but John really wasn't a prophet sent by God? Or did God make John famous because John was sent by God? Tell me. And they know the answer. Everybody knew that John was sent by God. The baptism of Jesus is Jesus saying, John was sent by God. Jesus is validating John's ministry. And therefore, he's validating what John is proclaiming. John is the forerunner. Yes, that's true. What he has said is true. And I am the Messiah. Number three. Jesus is being baptized, number one, to inaugurate his public ministry. Number two, to validate John's ministry. Number three, Jesus is being baptized to show his dependence upon the Spirit. Jesus is being baptized to show his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Verse nine, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he comes His public ministry is inaugurated. He validates John's ministry by being baptized by him in the Jordan. And then verse 10, immediately he comes up out of the water. That word immediately, it's used 53 times in the New Testament, and it's used 42 times by Mark. So 42 of the 53 usages of this word is by Mark. It's Mark's favorite word. He uses it here for the very first time in his gospel, and he'll use it 11 times in this chapter alone. He wants us to focus on what happens once Jesus is baptized. Coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens opening. My Bible says opening. That word opening is a violent word. It's ripping, being ripped, being torn in two. It's not just, uh, you know, opening like you're just barely opening a door quietly. It's being ripped. Greek word is schizo, where we get a schism from. This is a severe break. I also wonder, just, we don't know how much other people saw and heard of what was going on. It says he saw the heavens open. We don't know how much other people were able to understand what was happening. But I wonder if John's able to see what Jesus is seeing. I bet John is saying, see, I told you so. I told you so. I told you, you were supposed to baptize me, not me baptizing you. And this is what we're going to get, right? The, The heavens are being ripped open. Mark uses this word, two times in his gospel. The first time is here in the baptism and the second time, Mark 15, when the veil was torn in two, ripped in two. A tear in the curtain at the end of Jesus's life at his death signifies that he had accomplished the ministry that God gave him to do. A tear in the heavens signified the beginning of his ministry. This is the answer to the prayer in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Jesus is God with us. And once the heavens are ripped open, the Spirit descends like a dove. Verse 10. Descends like a dove. The Spirit comes upon Jesus in a special way. And this really is the coronation of the King. This is what we would call in the Old Testament, something called the theocratic anointing. God doing the work of anointing his servant with his spirit for a specific task. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But you remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go from different people. That's why David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Why? Is it because the Holy Spirit does not indwell Old Testament believers uh, in a saving way? No, it's because the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit was given to individuals to do and accomplish a specific purpose and design. Samson received this theocratic anointing. You remember Samson was given the Holy Spirit, kind of a messed up guy, but he's given the Holy Spirit for a specific work and for a power and for a ministry. And then once that ministry is accomplished, the Spirit is taken away. That's why David prays. The Holy Spirit was given in the Old Testament in a very different way than in the New Testament to believers, to you and to me. We are not given the Spirit in a theocratic anointing sense where one person is given the Spirit for one mission, for one task, and then the Holy Spirit leaves and goes to somebody else. We as the church, we all individually are given the Holy Spirit as a seal for the day of redemption. So this leads to the question, why does Jesus need the theocratic anointing? Why does he need the Holy Spirit? And I use that word very carefully, but I believe it's true. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 says that the Spirit would rest upon the servant of Yahweh to accomplish his purposes. This is the answer, the fulfillment of the empowering of the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. So why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? And the answer is because Jesus took upon himself at the incarnation, which we sang about earlier today, He took upon himself perfect humanity. Remember Philippians chapter two, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a human. He never ceased to be God. He didn't empty himself of deity. He never stopped being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He was always those things, but he took on humanity. That's why we say Jesus is two natures in one person. He's God nature, 100% God. He's human nature, 100% human in one person. This is a really challenging, mysterious, and worshipful reality of our Savior. But this text and so many others in the Gospel of Mark clearly teach us that Jesus depended on, relied upon, and needed the Holy Spirit to empower his ministry. You remember the Pharisees say, uh, you have done all the miracles that you did uh, by the devil, right? You You have been empowered by the devil himself to do all the miracles you're doing. And Jesus does not turn to them and say, you're blaspheming me because I did those miracles. What does he say? He says, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who did those miracles. Because could Jesus have done those miracles? Absolutely. But he took on human limitations to himself. You and I can't just go like this and say, well, let's do miracles. If God's going to allow us to do miracles, he's going to allow us to do miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So too with our Savior who took on perfect humanity. He lived our lives out before us. And in taking on perfect humanity, though he could easily have said, I'm going to use my omniscience. I'm going to use my omnipotence. He said, you know what? Patrick can't use omnipotence. He doesn't have omnipotence. He's not all powerful. And so if Patrick can't do that, then I'm going to live Patrick's life for him. And therefore I'm going to surrender using those things, not surrender having those things, but using those things So the Holy Spirit doing that work through me. And we'll look at this next Lord's Day in greater detail as Jesus is tempted by the devil. But the Holy Spirit indwells Jesus, descends on him like a dove. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a dove. It's a simile. It means that he's descending gently, descending beautifully, descending humbly, not like lightning, like a lightning bolt to earth, but gently, humbly. In the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, so Old Testament is in Hebrew, 
written in Hebrew. It was translated into Aramaic, something called the Targums. In the Targums, in the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Holy Spirit, remember our translation says, hovered over the waters. In the Targums, in the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, it says that the Holy Spirit fluttered like a dove over the waters. I think that there's an aspect of what Mark is trying to show us and what happened at the baptism of Jesus is a new age is being inaugurated. A new day is dawning. Just like the created order way back in Genesis 1 and the Trinity working together to bring about a new beginning, so too there's a new beginning here. Remember Noah, after the flood, he sends out a dove to find land to make a new beginning. The story of the entire world is changing because Jesus is here showing up now. This is a new age. We don't talk this way. We don't really speak in terms of ages and epochs anymore. I think the closest we would come to is in the political sphere, right? A new day is dawning if we get a new president or in the sports field, right? Our team stinks, but we have hope now because we have a new coach. A new day is dawning for our team. Here's a new day. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and we see a new age of hope beginning. Jesus is baptized, number one, to inaugurate his public ministry. Number two, to validate John's ministry. Number three, to show his dependence on the Spirit. Number four, to show the Father's validation of Jesus. To show the Father's validation of Jesus and his ministry and all that he's going to do. There are only three recorded moments of the father speaking over his son in his earthly ministry. We have the transfiguration. We have one time in the Passion Week where the father kind of breaks protocol and speaks into human history. And we have here only three times. And at this moment, God hadn't spoken in 400 years. Yes, the angel Gabriel had been given to uh, Zechariah in the temple earlier, but God hadn't spoken for 400 years. And here he speaks, verse 11. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. I think for the original recipients of Mark's gospel, they would have heard in those words, ringing in their hearts, in their souls, and in their minds, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. I also think Psalm 2 would have been ringing in their ears. God saying, I have installed my king, my son. Kiss the son, listen to him. Serve him, worship him. This is the father saying, you are my beloved Son, son, son of God. We talked about this last Lord's Day. To be the son of means you are of the same nature. You are equal to. You also receive the same inheritance. You are given glory and worship the way that God has given glory. God the Father has given glory and worship. You are my beloved son. Also has the connotation of my only son. There's no divided love here. I am only giving you my love because there's no other descendant for me to love. It all goes to you. And I think that Genesis 22 should be ringing in our ears as well when 
Abraham is told, take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Take him and sacrifice him. And you remember the end of that story. God stays Abraham's hands and says no and provides a lamb. But here we already have a foreshadowing that God the Father will crush the son whom he loves. Jesus is the true king. And he is being validated by the Father in these moments. Number five, the reason, the fifth reason why Jesus is baptized is to reveal the Trinity. I love that we sang the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we worship a triune God. And the baptism of Jesus reveals very clearly the Trinity, the triune nature of the Godhead. Each person of the Godhead is involved in this passage. You have the Father speaking, you have the Spirit descending, you have the Son being dunked. You have all three members of the Trinity here. And just like all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation in Genesis 1, so too there is a new creation beginning here in this scene. And by the way, all three members of the Trinity are used at the end of Matthew's gospel. You remember when Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name, the singular name of these three persons because they are three persons in one God. We worship one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God revealed perfectly in three persons. And here we see them, all three involved in the baptism of Jesus. Number six, the sixth reason why Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized, number six, to identify with sinful humanity. Jesus is baptized to identify with sinful humanity humanity. I love this passage because Jesus doesn't just teleport to John's side. I just picture, you know, like a little beam me up, Scotty, that Jesus just kind of poofs into existence right next to John. John goes, oh, here he is. Jesus doesn't do that. He takes the long journey from Nazareth all the way down to where John was baptizing in the Jordan River. He walks through the crowds. He's one of us. He identifies with you and with me. Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus is going into the water that has symbolically taken the sins of the people who have gone before him. And he's taking all of those sins upon himself. I love that picture. It's as if all these people before him are going into the water and they're being dunked under the water and all their sins are coming off of them and staying in the water and they're coming out clean and they're walking away. Jesus is going in, not dirty, but he's going in clean and he's going to take all of their sins symbolically upon himself. And we know that this is a prefiguring of the cross, of what Jesus is going to do at the cross. He's going to associate with himself with sinners in his baptism in a very picturesque way that he's going to do so in reality upon the cross. When he becomes sin, he is made to be sin on our behalf on the cross. Just like people were being baptized, confessing their sins in need of cleansing as they go to the river, Jesus is being baptized, but as the sinless one who will take on all of their sins so that they can be cleansed. He's associating himself with them. He's identifying with you and me. And finally, number seven, Jesus is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And I'm getting that language from Matthew 3. Go to Matthew 
chapter 3. This is Matthew's account of the baptism, and he expands it a little bit, not too much. Jesus is baptized to inaugurate his public ministry, number one, to validate John's ministry, number two, to show his dependence on the Spirit, his need for the Spirit. Number four, to show the Father's validating of Jesus' ministry. Number five, to reveal the Trinity. Number six, to identify with sinful humanity. And number seven, to fulfill all righteousness. Drop down to Matthew chapter three, verse 13. Jesus arrives from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tries to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. No, 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 this is wrong. We got this backwards. But Jesus answers and says to him, listen to Jesus's words. Permit it at this time because in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a clunky sentence, right? Nobody talks like that anymore. What is he saying? Permit it at this time. John, go ahead and do it. Allow it. I, I understand what you're saying, John, but no, this is the right thing to do. Allow it. Why? Because in this way, by us doing this, John, I am fulfilling all righteousness. I love this. If Jesus had just stepped out of heaven and instantly had been nailed to a cross. Have you ever wondered this? Why did Jesus, why didn't he just step out of heaven, find some way to just instantly be nailed to a cross, be made sin, die, bear the wrath of God, go to the grave, rise three days later, ascend into heaven. It's all done. It's all paid for. Why didn't he do that? Why was he born as a little baby? Why did he live 33 and a half years? Why did he do that? If Jesus had just stepped out of heaven and died on the cross, he would have succeeded only in taking us back to square one. We'd no longer be guilty, but we would have zero positive righteousness to bring before God. If Jesus died on the cross, then that's all he did. We would have been taken back to square one. Okay, paid for, paid in full. You are innocent. Now try to remain innocent. <laughs> And we'd say, hooray, not guilty. And then you take one step, guilty. That's why Jesus says, I'm going to be born as a baby to live out a perfect, sinless life. So we do not just need a Savior who will die. We need a Savior who will live in our place. And that's why Jesus says, I need to obey the, the Father perfectly. And this is an aspect. John, baptize me so that I can live in other people's places. Just think about this for you and for me. I mean, there's easy examples we could go to, like the thief on the cross, right? Baptism is something that we know that we should be doing. Thief on the cross never had a chance to do it. Can he not go to heaven because he didn't do something that God's going to ultimately require believers to do? No. Why? Because Jesus was baptized for him. Jesus was baptized for him. In his place. Brothers and sisters, I would say this to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. It's not some mystical work that gets you saved. No, the Bible is very clear. Baptism is an act of obedience that you do once you have been saved. And if you are saved, there shouldn't be any reason why you shouldn't desire and long to be baptized. 
And I would plead with you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, obey the Lord, share the glory of the gospel. Let other people see and revel in the work that God has done in your life. But if for some reason that weren't to happen, if you were to choose to disobey the Lord and you do not get baptized, guess what? If you die and you go stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And you look and you say, I wasn't baptized. I didn't do this work that I know you were asking me to do. I didn't obey you. And I don't have a perfect record of righteousness. God the Father could look at you and say, yeah, but if you were clinging to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, and in his finished work on the cross alone, you also get his perfect record of righteousness and you get his baptism put into your account. Why was Jesus baptized? So that he could be baptized for you. So those are easy examples. Go to you and to me. There is never a millisecond in my life where I have been perfectly sinless in what I've done. So guess what? My baptism was filled with sin. And Jesus says, you know what, Patrick? Thank you. Obedience, good. But I need a better baptism. I need a flawless, perfect baptism. And so I'll do it for you. That's why he says, John, we need to do this because it will fulfill, it will keep all righteousness. It will accomplish all righteousness. He was baptized for you and for me. So seven reasons why Jesus was baptized. Inaugurate his public ministry, validate John's ministry, show his dependence on the spirit, show the father's validating of Jesus's ministry, reveal the Trinity to us, identify with sinful humanity and fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean for you and for me? What do those seven realities mean for you and for me? And let's think of it in terms of the Trinity. Number one, what does this mean for us? So the, remember our two questions that we began our morning with. Question number one is, why was Jesus baptized? And now you have seven. There are many other answers, but there are seven answers that you could give. Second question, second overarching question. So what? What does it mean for you and for me today? It means three things. Let's look at it in terms of the Trinity. Number one, it means that you have a savior, the son of God, who identifies with you. The baptism means that you have a great high priest who knows your every weakness. He identifies with you. He's not standing far off. He's entering into your mess, into the messy waters of your sinful life in order to cleanse you. He was baptized here in Mark chapter one in water. He will ultimately be baptized at the cross in the wrath of God so that you and I can experience the baptism into Jesus, into his finished work. Jesus submitted to the baptism of repentance, even though he had nothing to repent of. Why? Because the deep desire of his heart is to embrace sinners in need of repentance. He doesn't stand far off. He identifies with you. You have a savior who knows your every weakness. The author of Hebrews says he was tempted just like we are in every way, yet without fault, without sin. Can I just say, parents, there's one easy application of this. And I can tell you this application because I fail at this all the time. How often do we as parents look at our kids and just think, how in the world did you think that that was okay to do? And then in our hearts, we think, I would never do that. I would never do that. How, how did you think that was okay? I would never do that. Do you know how alienating that is for our kids? 
We say, I would never do that. We just, we separate ourselves from them and they look at us as if like, oh, dad thinks he walks on water and I'm just an idiot over here. Guys, the God of the universe never says that to you. In fact, he identifies with you. He doesn't say, I don't get you. I would never do that. No, he wraps his arm around you and says, I've been there. I know it's so hard. I know what it feels like. And I'm here to strengthen you because I know it's hard. Number one, you have a savior who identifies with you. He does not stand far off, removed from you, saying, I don't get you. I don't understand you. No, he completely understands you. He lived your life before you. Number two, you have a spirit. You have the Holy Spirit who empowers you. Just like Jesus lived his life out before you and me, relying on the Holy Spirit, being truly human, depending every day on the Spirit, you and I have the same Holy Spirit residing in us to empower us, and we can depend on him. The Holy Spirit is no longer given in a theocratic anointing way, as if just one time to one person to empower you and then gone. No, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a seal of the the redemption that you have in Christ, forever sealed by the Spirit. The moment you're saved, you get the Spirit never to depart, to be with you forever and to bring you safely home. The baptism reminds us that just like Jesus depended on the Spirit, we too can, we should, we must, and we get the Spirit to lead us safely home. And finally, number three, you have a Father who loves you. The baptism of Jesus shows us, number one, you have a a Savior who identifies with you. Number two, you have the Holy Spirit who can empower you for ministry. And number three, you have a Father who loves you. You are my beloved child, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, we don't talk like that. It's not the way that we speak. If we were to put those words into our vernacular, you are my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. What he's saying is, I love everything about you and I love everything you do. It makes me happy. Everything you do makes me happy. I love everything about you. You're my beloved child. And you're well pleased in me. Everything you do makes me happy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was baptized so that you can hear those words spoken over you. I don't know your background, whether you grew up with a father who would speak to you with tenderness and kindness and say, I love everything about you and just everything you do makes me happy. I don't know what your background is, but my guess is there are many in this room who never felt that way from their earthly fathers. Their earthly fathers never gave that sense of, I love everything about you and everything you do makes me so happy. Probably it's, it's more like, you know what? If I could fix things about you, I really wish I could. And, and there are some things that I enjoy watching you do, but the majority, man, I would do it differently if I were you. Jesus was baptized for you to hear these words this morning. Not from your earthly father, but from your creator, your heavenly father. Jesus was baptized so that you, being hidden in Christ, wearing his perfection, you could hear this morning, your heavenly father say to you, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, because you, I see Christ when I look at you, and so therefore you are my beloved son. I love everything about you, 
and everything you do makes me happy. And brothers and sisters, when we hear those words, that should shatter our souls because we look inside and we say, there is nothing in me that is worthy of that. There's nothing in me that deserves that. And that's right. And that's why we cling to Jesus and we hold on to the hope of the gospel. And we say, how could you love me? And Jesus says, I love you in spite of you. I love you. And I removed all that sin away. And now I cherish and treasure you because of who I am and my love for you. I love you. And now I have nothing but love to give to you. The journey from Nazareth, where Jesus began walking to the baptism, where tradition says he was baptized in the Jordan, takes about 10 to 14 days. Just think about how easy it would have been for Jesus in those 10 to 14 days to just stop and go, you know what, I don't want to do this. I don't want to begin my public ministry because I know where it ends. I don't need validation from the Father because I don't know if I want to walk down that road. We sang it earlier, not my will, yours be done. He's having to think that as he's walking to be baptized because he knows what this will cost him. And every step of the way, he thinks of the Father, glorifying him, obeying him. It's my food to do the will of the Father. And he thinks of you and me because he wants to win for you and for me those words. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I love everything about you and everything you do. Makes me so happy. This is the inauguration and the coronation of the king. So now we throw a party, right? No. Immediately he is sent to be alone with the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. His first act as coronated king is to fight. And he does that because he loves you and he loves me. Father, thank you so much for your word that points us not only to the reality of what was accomplished at the baptism, but also what it means for me today, what it means for us to know that we are covered in the righteousness of Christ that though we have nothing in us by ourselves that would cause you to love us, we can't perform well enough for you. We can't earn righteousness, earn a good record of doing good. You graciously have given it to us in Christ. And so we stand amazed in your presence. And all we can cry out is thank you and hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray the name of Jesus. Amen.